I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. Coming up, we speak with the authors of a new book about food and soil quality titled What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Tillage and the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers and the overuse of herbicides has impacted soil life, all those bacteria and fungi and those symbiotic relationships with crops. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's How on Earth's Joel Parker with news about scientists who are harnessing DNA to make electronic components at the nanoscale. DNA is the engine of genetics and life, or perhaps more appropriately, is the user's manual for that engine. Now, as recently reported in the journal Science, researchers have shown how they can use DNA as an engine to create nanoscale structures for electronics that could have far-ranging uses from very small sensors, imaging, quantum computing, and room temperature superconductors. This work was enabled with cryoelectron microscopy, or Cryo-EM, which simplifies and improves the imaging of biomolecules, including the three-dimensional atomic structures of proteins. The development of Cryo-EM was awarded the 2017 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Applying this technique, this recent paper discusses how the researchers used DNA to guide chemical reactions to modify lattices of carbon nanotubes, which are tiny hollow cylinders of carbon, and control chemical reactions along the nanotubes so that the lattice could be assembled as precisely as needed for specific purposes and functions. In other words, they used chemistry to perform extremely precise structural engineering at the level of individual molecules. One of the co-authors, Dr. Edward Engelman from University of Virginia's Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics, stated, This work demonstrates that ordered carbon nanotude modification can be achieved by taking advantage of DNA sequence control over the spacing between adjacent reaction sites. The lattice they built provides proof of concept for this process. Although cryo-EM is the most recent and main technique in biology for determining the atomic structures of protein assemblies, this work shows that it also can be applied to other areas such as materials science, physics, and engineering. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Researchers at Oregon State University are suggesting the U.S. set aside 500,000 square kilometers in the West for a rewilding project. 
In the rewilding area, they are urging the federal government to discontinue grazing in about 30% of those lands. This, they say, would restore degraded western ecosystems and would allow the return of two species that can help regenerate depleted landscapes. Those two animals are wolves and beavers. In a paper published in Bioscience, the Oregon scientists proposed creating a livestock-free corridor along 11 states stretching from Washington state to New Mexico. Among the states is Colorado. Dubbed the Western Rewilding Network, the scientists say their plan would ultimately restore not just wolves and beavers, but the complex web of ecosystems that can even affect how rivers flow and how wildfires spread. Reintroducing top predators to help reestablish damaged and unbalanced environments is not a new concept. Nearly a century ago, Aldo Leopold, considered by many to be the father of wildlife ecology, had an epiphany of sorts about predators, and wolves in particular. He wrote that in the 1900s, the U.S. Forest Service hired him to hunt bears, wolves, and mountain lions under the mistaken assumption that killing off predators would save more livestock from death and increase the deer population for hunters. Leopold's thinking began to shift when he and his fellow rangers shot a mother wolf. In an essay called Thinking Like a Mountain, Leopold wrote, quote, we reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and the mountain. I was young then, and full of trigger itch. I thought that, because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. Leopold also wrote that killing off wolves allowed deer to overpopulate, leading the deer to strip plants of all greenery. Like Leopold, the Oregon scientists promoting the rewilding project contend that wildlife in our federal preserves would be healthier and more diverse if there was more room for the top predators. And how would beavers fit into this project? It works like this. The wolf population keeps not just deer but also elk on the move. This reduces the destruction of streamside ecosystems by overgrazing and trampling. Cottonwood, aspen, and willow, which feed and house wildlife and stop stream bank erosion, can then continue to thrive. The tree's shade creates cooler water, which leads to more plentiful fish like trout, and now we get more beaver who eat the cottonwoods and willows, then use them to build their homes, beaver dams. The dams slow the water to create beaver ponds, which create sanctuaries and food for birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish. Beaver ponds also support mammals such as moose, otter, mink, and muskrat. They reduce flooding and soil erosion and raise the water table, which helps the vegetation. Back to wolves again. Wolves prefer larger prey such as deer and elk. 
but they also chase away coyotes. This would keep the coyote population in check, which opens up food sources like small rodents to birds of prey, foxes, weasels, and snakes. So in these ways, wolves would increase predator diversity as well. The Oregon State University researchers point out that wolves once numbered in the tens of thousands in western states. That number is currently about 3,500. The beaver population has declined 90% since colonial settlers began hunting them for their fur. While the Oregon scientists call the idea of a western rewilding network ambitious, they say it could help combat increasing natural disasters, including extended drought, water shortages, heat waves, wildfires, and biodiversity losses. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Soil health affects our health. That's the concept that grounds the issues raised by geologist David Montgomery and biologist Anna Beaclay in their new book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. The authors contend that the health of our soil makes a huge difference in the quality of the food that you eat and how that food affects our health. For more, let's listen now to an interview with the authors by KGNU News Director Shannon Young. If you look at the general principles that seem to work very well to rebuild soil fertility and health, it's minimizing disturbance of the soil, and, and frequent tillage is a very disturbing process on the soil. It can affect soil life in a big way. Um, it's planting cover crops to keep the ground covered with living plants at all times, uh, and it's also growing a diversity of crops. And so when you look at, um, at conventional practices, the overuse of agrochemicals is really affecting soil life in a big way. The overuse of tillage is affecting life in a big way. Um, but many organic uh, farms rely on frequent tillage as well as a means to control weeds, and that can limit their ability to rebuild soil health. Now, there's always a big difference between organic and conventional in terms of the amounts of pesticides that get into food, and conventional always has more. Um, and there's differences in heavy metals as well. Uh, and organic foods tend to always have more phytochemicals, compounds that are important for human health, as Anne and I go into in the book as well. But there's a lot of wide range of practices in both organic and conventional systems, and tillage is one of them that we should seek to minimize in both systems. As with agrochemicals, we should seek to minimize their use. And that's not the case in, in conventional farming today. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think I would add anything to that. I think one of the most interesting things, Shannon, when you start talking with people about farming and agriculture and and especially for folks maybe who haven't been around farms or farmers, um, they tend to think of of plowing and the plow as like this iconic part of farming and agriculture. And it's true, you know, thousands of years ago, that first intrepid human being who thought to find a stick or something like that and drag it through the soil and stick a that that was the beginning of agriculture. But 
what Dave was talking about in terms of how much plowing disturbs the soil, especially, you know, we're a far cry from just dragging a stick through the soil, of course, these days. We've got different kinds of plows that to varying degrees, the plow goes into the soil, it lifts it up and flips it over. It would be like, you know, if someone were to take the roof off of your house and stick some kind of a giant egg beater in there, I mean, things are going to get disrupted, right? You're not going to be happy. Your family's not going to be happy. Stuff is flying everywhere. So that that's sort of the, the thing about tillage. It, it does uh, help organic farmers control weeds. It does expose um, seeds to soil to get them germinating. But there's other ways to farm. There's, there's ways to farm without plowing. And we talk about that in the book as well. Some um, really innovative vegetable farmers, one in Connecticut, um, another in California, have pioneered methods on their vegetable farms. So they're, they're no-till vegetable farmers. And that's, that's a little different than most no-till farmers. A lot across the U.S., at least, or in North America, no-till farmers are largely focused on, um, they're in, first of all, they're in flat areas. And they're focused on um, grain crops more than vegetables. But the thing about no-till farming is you can do it anywhere and you can do it with pretty much any crop. And this is where sort of the, the smarts and the innovative nature of farming comes out. Not all farmers are interested in figuring this out, but there are a lot who are. And um, many have hit onto sort of, you know, a recipe for success. I think one of the more illustrative comparisons that you made in the book as far as like what tillage does to soil health and the networks that live underground is that it's akin to a tornado just ripping through a town, right? So describe exactly what those networks are living underground. I think we know about micronutrients and, and minerals, but, but what else is under the ground that contributes to the quality of the food that we eat? Yeah, well, soil contains probably one of the grandest ecosystems that we know about. It's also a place where there are, you know, across the history of life, some of the longest running symbioses. So a symbiosis, a symbiotic relationship is just one in which uh, all members of the relationship are definitely needed. And, you know, by and large, most of the time, these symbiotic relationships benefit all involved. And so in the soil, it's plants are um, a big part of that symbiotic relationship because they're actually feeding these communities of microorganisms with compounds and molecules that uh, flow, believe it or not, they flow out of the roots and into a, a very narrow zone right around each and every root um, on a plant. And there, just sort of like dogs at the dinner bowl, are these microbial communities waiting to lap up all of these exudates. That's the broad term for, for all this food that's flowing out of um, a plant's root system. So who's in these communities? Uh, there's fungi and bacteria are the most studied kinds of microorganisms that associate with plants. But there's also viruses there. There's also another um, really ancient life form uh, that, that's called archaea. 
And so this is sort of the broad grouping of all microorganisms. And they associate with each other. They associate with plants. And you sort of think, wow, why would all of this be going on? And it's because a plant can do things that soil-dwelling organisms cannot. And namely, that is, they can photosynthesize. So they can take water, they can take sunlight, carbon dioxide, and they can manufacture food. And of course, the botanical world has a lock on photosynthesis. I can't do it, you can't do it, at least until we get some green skin and some chloroplasts, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. So plants have this monopoly on the sun and the microorganisms are down there in this world where there is no photosynthetic capability or opportunity for that matter. So plants are feeding them carbohydrates, fats, proteins. It's like this buffet. And the organisms, the microorganisms in the soil, they, for their part, they can do things that plants cannot. And in the book, we went into some detail in the hidden half of nature as well. Think about fungi. That word starts with an F and so does fetch. So fungi are fetching all kinds of things in the soil from uh, minerals like phosphorus. Phosphorus is a is one of the three main things that plants need for their normal growth and development. They're also fetching things um, in smaller quantities, but just as important for plant health and growth, stuff like zinc or iron. And bacteria and these fungi, they can travel for um, you know, hundreds, tens of kilometers through the soil, mining and transporting things for these stuck in place plants. And bacteria, they're, they don't, they can't move through the soil and collect and bring things back to plants, but they're sort of like the nutrient provisioning service for plants in that they consume exudates and in return, they're transforming the exudates um, into different kinds of products, including just one example is plant growth promoting hormones. So plants are feeding bacteria, bacteria are making growth hormones for the plants and the plants take them back up. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, this is part of, part of how the, the plant body communicates with its microbiome. And we want this conversation to be um, robust, full of information, full of nutrients, and, you know, good for all involved. There's a phrase that comes up over and over again in the book, and that's mycorrhizal fungi. Am I even saying that correctly? You sure are. Yeah, mycorrhizal fungi. Um, the mycorrhizal fungi are our fetchers. These are the fetching fungi. And a lot of people think when they think about fungi, they think, oh, I love to eat fungi, you know, or there's, there's, you know, fungi growing on trees or there's fungi decomposing my wood chips. And the decomposing fungi are a different group than these mycorrhizal fungi. So you have your decomposers and they serve just as important a role because they're breaking down the dead parts of plants that are the hardest of all to break down, you know, these oils and things like that. That's that takes a while to to break down into smaller bits that then get into the nutrient cycle. So the mycorrhizae are the ones that are traveling through the soil, collecting all of this stuff and bringing it back to plants. Are these networks visible to the human eye or how, how do people know if they have it in their soil? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of scientists, you know, they will. This is like a big part of soil science and also 
agronomy and and so on is you get a soil sample and you start looking at that and then you know before long your eight hours have passed and you're still counting up what's in there um but you know that i've seen this in um our own garden uh we know that we have mycorrhizal and the decomposing fungi because the one visible part of fungi is what's called its fruiting body and that is the stem and the cap of the mushroom and together that is the above ground part of both uh, mycorrhizal fungi or some of these decomposers. And so what the fungi are doing, that fruiting body, it's sort of like the flower that's releasing pollen. And so the fruiting body is the way to get spores. This is how fungi spread themselves around. These tiny little spores are carried in the, in the wind and in the air and they land on something else. And that's how fungi spread themselves around. And so when you see these fruiting bodies, um, just kind of, just, you know, leave them alone. They're doing their thing. And especially if these are beneficial fungi, then you're allowing them to spread themselves around in your garden or on your farm. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with David R. Montgomery and Anne Bickley, authors of What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. And in the book, uh, you point to an ongoing loss of minerals and micronutrients in the soil, particularly when it comes to iron and zinc. What is causing this loss and is there a way to reverse it? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not so much a loss of an iron and zinc from the soil as as much as a loss of iron and zinc from getting into the crops we grow in our soil. So there's a lot of, you know, consternation and discussion about the depletion of soil minerals. And that's not really what's going on. There's a couple things that that, uh, most soils have enough of most elements to grow most crops. The problem is getting them into the crops and making them available to the crops. And that's where soil biology, all those fungi and bacteria that Anne was just talking about, really come into play. And plants partner with them to get things like mineral elements, like iron and zinc, out of particles in the soil and into the plants. And so when we look at sort of, you know, the the available, the amount of, say, zinc in the soil, there's two ways to look at it. One is just how much is in there, you know, all told, dispersed throughout all the minerals in the soil, and how much of it is available for a plant to actually pull up through its roots and incorporate into its body so it can start the journey to make its way into our bodies eventually. Um, and there's a few things that have contributed to the, 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 the documented historical decline in mineral and mineral micronutrient abundance in, in crops. One of them is what's called the, the dilution effect. And that's where when we breed crops for high yield, th- imagine wheat, for example, where if you're breeding a wheat stock uh, to have many more grains of wheat on the stock, so you're getting more wheat out of that one plant. Um, think about the iron or the zinc it's taking up out of the soil and, and di- directing to its seeds. It's dividing it among more seeds. So it's essentially spreading the peanut butter a little thinner on the cracker. If you're taking the same amount of iron up out of the soil by the plant, but you're pushing it into more seeds, each seed gets less. Um, and so that's the dilution effect that was an inadvertent side effect of breeding crops for higher yields in the Green Revolution. Um, but the other effect was, is the, the way that conventional farming practices, particularly tillage and the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers and the overuse of herbicides, um, has impacted soil life, the, all those bacteria and fungi and those symbiotic relationships with crops. Because, um, and when, that, when those systems are disrupted, 
it can reduce the uh, provisioning of mineral micronutrients to the plants. It's breaking the, the mining and the transport system that was supplying those plants with those materials from their fungal and bacterial partners. Um, so essentially what's been going on with uh, alterations in nutrient density of foods, as we essentially conclude in the book, is the alteration of relationships between crops and soil life over the past century through the adoption of now conventional practices has disrupted um, the provisioning of certain mineral micronutrients and the production of, of phytochemicals, uh, chemicals plants make for their own health and defense that are teed up in response to interactions with soil life. Um, and fortunately, those kinds of changes are reversible. I mean, if, if, the, if the world's soils were just running out of iron and zinc, you know, what are we going to do? Go to the asteroid belt and get more to like fertilize our soils? That would be a really super huge problem. Um, but if we can restore soils by restore, restore the fertility of soils, by restoring life to the soils, by rebuilding the, the, our, our biological partners or, or a farmer's biological partners in the soil, that can actually be done remarkably fast. And that's where there's a, a healthy dose of optimism in the book, because a lot of the problems that we write about in terms of the reduction of mineral micronutrients and phytochemicals, which when they get into us serve as antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, signaling compounds that help to tee up our immune system and, and, and active genes that affect our, our health and defenses. You know, those kind of changes can be reversed if we alter our farming practices and reversed fairly rapidly through some of the as we've documented through some of the examples that we write about. I'm Benita Lee. Thanks to KGNU News Director and How on Earth contributor Shannon Young. Shannon's been talking with geologist David Montgomery and biologist Anna B. Clay, authors of the new book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender, Joel Parker, and yours truly, Benita Lee. Additional contributions by KGNU News Director Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music, Green Onions from Booker T. C418 and Guided Meditations Music Zone. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and hot links to what we've talked about today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Benita Lee. 